I feel like it's this joy of knowing I don't have to make a choice. Either I'm a democracy diehard or I'm a food movement diehard. And to realize that we can't separate the two. I'm interested personally in seeing people put back into the equation as much as we can. Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Houck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published across the U.S. and Canada, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. In today's episode, we'll begin by speaking with Twilight Greenaway, Senior Editor at Civil Eats, and then with Francis Moore-LePay, author of the 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet, and her daughter and contributor, Anna LePay. Both conversations take different looks at what we eat, how we eat, and the climate crisis. Twilight Greenaway is the senior editor at Civil Eats and its former managing editor. Her articles about food and farming have appeared in The New York Times, NPR, The Guardian, Take Part, Modern Farmer, Gastronomica, and Grist. Twilight is the author of the third in a series of pieces produced by Edible Communities for publication in Edible magazines across the U.S. and Canada and at ediblecommunities.com. Her recent essay, titled We Are What We Eat, It's Time to Make Food Decisions with the Climate Crisis in Mind, is at once a meaty menu of both problems and solutions to our climate crisis and a beautiful personal reflection on the role of the individual in solving the planet's great problems. Twilight Greenway, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thank you so much, Amy. It's really great to be here. We're glad you're here. In your article, you mention a family farm in Hawaii. Can you talk a little bit about growing up on a farm and if that upbringing had anything to do with your path towards becoming a journalist focused on issues related to food? Absolutely. It had everything to do with it, as you might imagine. I lived on a farm until I was 17. And so that really shaped my sense of the world. It shaped in good and at the time difficult ways, my sense of work. I didn't always want to work on the farm as <laughs> I hear from a lot of other farm kids that that's the case, but I did get a really up close and personal look at the natural world. And I'm extremely thankful for that. And my mother actually still farms today with her husband and I spend time there. This year, I actually spent the most time I've spent since I was probably 19 or 20. I, I was there for two and a half months in the fall because of COVID, brought my young son there so that he could have some outside time and some time away from, you know, the COVID madness here in Oakland, California. And then I went back this summer and that was when I was really thinking about climate really intensely because it wouldn't stop raining there. It was saturated. The soil on the farm was soaking wet and muddy and Every day, my mother would get up and kind of pace around and <laughs> stress out about the fact that the sun wasn't coming out. And she lives on what is called the dry side of the island in Kona. And so if you live on the wet side, you're used to weeks and weeks of rain, but that just doesn't happen where she lives. And so her farm is not used to that type of condition. And it was pretty dramatic. And it was also in really stark contrast to my experience here in California and a lot of our experiences in the West this year and in years past. 
Yeah, you actually open your essay with sort of a recitation of recent huge impacts on the food system just in the last year, right? Crop failures due to flooding, drought, wind, fire, and more, all caused by the climate crisis. And essentially, you're asking, if we had known these things were coming, what would we have done differently? And that makes me wonder, should we have known they were coming? That was a little bit of a rhetorical device, of course. Some of us have been paying attention to this for a while, and I don't want to pretend that there haven't been climate scientists warning us of, you know, very dire changes coming and coming quickly. But I do think on the ground, even if we have had somewhat of a conceptual idea of what has been coming, it has been quite a few years, really. The last two to three years, things have gotten, as you know, really dramatic. I also think that there's a lot of adaptation that happens unconsciously with with people. Like we've seen that within the pandemic, you know, we just adjust to how strange things are. And maybe the sort of know it was coming is kind of like that. So we're just, we things are hotter, things are smokier. Um, so it, maybe it's a different kind of knowing. Yes, I was thinking about this this morning, actually, how the pandemic, for me at least, has created this odd side effect where I don't remember very well what happened before it. I think it really, it rewired our brains in a way. And I, when I, this was an interesting exercise for me to think back to the experience of writing actually for Edible San Francisco and attending uh, an event where two economists were talking about climate change and the potential impact on our food system. And they were very casual in a way, you know, they were talking about a serious topic, but they were really doing a good job of reassuring us that here in North America, we weren't going to be very impacted very soon. It seems like there could be a lot to unpack in that kind of a declaration because it's it's a sort of other people's problem kind of mm -hmm. thing. That that's comes exactly with what it was. Yes, that's exactly what it was. It was like here in North America, we'll be fine. We'll always have access to food. Other people will always be making it for us, even if they won't be able to eat themselves. And it wasn't that simple, but that was that was what was coming across. I think a number of people still think that they can escape the climate crisis by buying different real estate, by moving up the hill, by building walls in the ocean. <laughs> and I think that while... That's, that's very tempting for us all to be strategizing and thinking about how to survive the next couple decades. I also think that it, it's really an important moment for us to be thinking collectively and not necessarily being so quick to step back and remove ourselves and separate ourselves from those folks who will be impacted. Absolutely. And actually, during the description of all these crises in your essay, it feels a lot kind of like, like we're in the eye of a storm. And then when it comes to solutions, I really liked how your essay takes a kind of, it's a more peaceful turn, which was a little bit of a relief for the warriors among us. First of all, we go from this like bird's eye view to a worm's eye view in a way, because you say, when it comes to making sure the rest of us have a future... I'm betting on the work of small-scale farmers and ranchers and more of them working at human scale as one of our important solutions to the climate crisis. Can you talk about scale, both about how scaling up contributed to climate problems and how scaling back could potentially be one of the solutions? Sure. And this is something that I'm 
constantly trying to understand and report on and research and working with a lot of great writers at Civil Elites to report on this as well. And I don't think it's, I don't think it all boils down to scale, but I do think that farmers and ranchers who are working at what some of us call a human scale are more likely to be in touch with what's actually happening on the land. And that's not to say that there aren't some some large scale ranchers who are doing an amazing job of working regeneratively and figuring out how to farm and ranch with less of an impact. But I do think that there is a, an increase in the number of solutions that use technology and corporate approaches in such a way that have really t- started to take people out of the equation. And so I'm interested personally in seeing people put back into the equation as much as we can. And the people who are still in the, the humans who are still in the equation, maybe not all of them, but I'd like to see a lot of them able to stay on the land if possible. I'd like to see their families able to stay on the land if possible. I'd like to see that possibility continue to unfold. And I think that the the local food movement and the work that edible publications have done to really, you know, lift up those folks and, and boost their profiles and, really help create kind of a movement around eating the food that they produce. um, I think that's been incredibly important. And I think that we, you know, that's obviously not enough, as I say in the the essay, that eating local food and uh, supporting those folks is is only one piece of the puzzle. We also really have to think about policy. Yeah. um, I just saw some reporting, I think just yesterday, which talked about the idea that the family farm only exists because of the huge amounts of support that, you know, it gets from institutions and the idea that uh, uh, even bigger rethinking of the economy is necessary. Um, and I think it was hinting more at cooperative models and other, other, other models of both land ownership and collaborative farming practices. What do you think about that? I think that we're actually not giving enough support to certain types of farmers. I do think there are farmers who have received a fair amount of report, excuse me, fair amount of support from the government. And I think that's correct, but I am not as convinced that we should be problematizing the, the family farm as it stands now without looking at how we can support the folks who are doing it well, the folks who are really taking the time to work with the environment and work with animals and with people in a just way I don't think we should be problematizing (laughs) their independence exactly. I think it's great when they can work together. I think it's important for all kinds of avenues to open up to be able to access land, to be able to access tools and training, to be able to learn from one another. But I don't think it's as simple as family farms are the problem. (laughs) And I, and I I know the piece you're talking about, and I know that that's kind of the, um, the rhetoric there. Yeah, absolutely. You you mentioned technology a minute ago. How do you feel like technology figures into our farming future, especially as the status quo agribusiness is kind of becoming more unsustainable? Well, that's a question that I've been digging into recently and hope to dig into more in the next year or so because it's it's coming fast and there's there's a lot of change afoot and 
a year and a half ago, I went and spent time with um, a company that's that's working on uh, automated strawberry harvester, and I'm looking to spend some time with other folks who are who are trying to actually really not exactly move towards a, a future where there are no human beings left in the food system, but really continue to reduce the number of human beings. And, you know, we've already used technology to, to really radically change the way we produce seeds, to really radically change the way we farm in a number of other ways. And some of that has made th things more efficient, absolutely. And I'm not going to say it's all been problematic, but as we know, it's led to a system of, of monocropping and really a compartmentalization of the food system, right? So we potatoes only grow in Idaho for the most part. And I worked on a story a while back about an effort to try to bring oats back in Iowa because for a long time, oats were a really important part of the, the crop system there. And there's no, there really are almost no oats in Iowa. There's no market for oats in Iowa anymore. Um, this would have because, been a good year for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're all growing now in, in Canada for the most part. So I think that technology has, has really made that compartmentalization possible. There've been other things like weather that, that have made that logical. But um, as we talk about trying to build more resilient, climate resilient farms and the need for diversity, we know that more crops for the most part are better <laughs> and that integrating animals and, um, and livestock into cropping systems can be really helpful for building the soil and making the soil and the farm itself more resilient. Uh, we know that that monocropping can kind of work against that. And so again, it's not a simple dichotomy, but I feel that technology has in a lot of ways made our farms less resi resilient, less resilient. I'll say that again. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I am concerned about the technology of the, of the future. Not, not that I'm trying to sound like a Luddite, but I do think that we will have fewer people actually physically present on farms, fewer people with agency to make decisions present on farms. We will still have some laborers and we will still have some farmers, but I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think about the dangerous work of farming and how potentially technology might protect workers mm -hmm. if used well. Yes, and that's that's really interesting. And there are people who are exploring the possibility for co-working with machines. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely the future for a lot of, of harvesting and other pieces of the kind of particularly in the fruit and vegetable and nut space, right? I mean, we already have machines that come and shake the trees and take all the nuts off, mm -hmm. <laughs> which are kind of amazing to watch. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're only on a video. Yeah, they do it in seconds. It's incredible. And, you know, there are things like that where it's like, I can see why that's exciting and why having one machine come and, you know, remove all the nuts from a thousand acres in a day is, you know, is incredibly efficient and saves certain, you know, saves people from doing backbreaking labor. And I think that's, that's part of the really interesting discussion that we're in right now is, is what is the, what is the right level of labor? And I, I believe that farms like my mother's, although it's, it's very 
difficult work for her, there, the diversity built in requires that your body does a lot of different things as opposed to bending over and picking strawberries all day, which is horrible for your back. And I'm not saying that that, that labor is you know, not valuable for those workers because it is, but it's incredibly debilitating and people age much faster than they would if they, I believe if they were doing more diverse physical work and getting to think about the farm in a strategic creative way, right? That's another big piece of the work of smaller scale farming. It's, it's constantly strategizing and thinking about how to change things and how to adapt and and that can be exciting as much as it can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. And when you actually talk about farming, you are talking not just about size, but you mentioned that who is farming is key. More Black and Indigenous farmers, more farmers of color, more LGBTQ farmers. Can you tell us a bit more about the importance of what you call intentionally making space? Sure. I think this is a big part of the farming conversation at large right now. The fact that so much of the land is owned by white families, many of whom have owned it for a long time. And the fact that there is so little access to land and other resources historically for farmers of color. And the fact that there has been so much discrimination in the, the lending practices and other financial tools available to farmers of color. And we know that there was a systematic removal of farmers of color from the land in parts of the United States. And so we're at a, a crucial moment where when we think about trying to potentially bring more people back into the fold, there's all this land that's about to change hands. We know that there are farmers who are about to retire and that the average age of the American farm farmer is 57 and a half. So as we think about that land, land changing hands, there is the amazing opportunity to strategize and bring more people in who haven't had the opportunity to be on the land. And there's the danger, of course, that someone with a thousand acres is going to sell to their neighbor who has five or 10,000 acres. And that this shift is going to ultimately lead to more larger farms that just continue to grow. That's on one side of the, <laughs> the spectrum of possibility. There's also the possibility that we could bring more people in. And the question of how to do that is really a big one. We could help with student loans. We could forgive student loans for, for young people who are looking to farm. We could find other ways to support and incentivize financially their purchasing land, their leasing land. We could do a lot to help bring new farmers and in particular farmers of color and those who haven't had access onto the land. And it's a matter of prioritizing that. There's, there has been policy written over the last few years, particularly in relation to the farm bill. Every time a farm bill comes up, we have lawmakers who develop bills that they hope get built into the farm bill. And the last few times that's happened, there have been some amazing pieces of, of legislation that have been proposed and a few have squeaked through, but for the most part, it hasn't happened to the degree that we need it to. Is that, am I answering your question? Yeah, <laughs> no, I think so. Uh, it, when you talked about this impending change, it made me think a lot about the sort of 
corporate and billionaire buy-ups of farmland that's been going on. And I guess I wonder how you think that will play into this mix. It's a great question. Right now, there's already kind of a system of land ownership that leads to a number of farmers leasing land, growing crops like corn and soy, crops that will they know will make the most money in order to continue making a profit for those landowners. And that is not likely to end. <laughs> and it is somewhat up to the landowners, of course, right? Like we know that Bill Gates could take a really progressive stance around land ownership. He hasn't chosen to do that because he, I don't think he sees himself as participating in land ownership exactly. I think he sees land as another asset and land has become an asset for the billionaires of the world, unfortunately. I need to find a way to talk about this that isn't totally depressing. <laughs> I guess if it is depressing, what do we do about it? You know, There are a number of projects around the country. There are a number of companies that are working to bring more farmers in, more small-scale farmers in, more new and beginning farmers in. But it's it's hard work. The, the marketplace does not make space for that intentionally. And so it has to happen gradually for the most part, and it has to happen with a lot of intention. In the piece, you talk about collective approach to land ownership. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Um, there are several farm commons projects happening, and they're, they're just getting started. I mean, I think that is it is inspiring, but it's it's still pretty new. And there are people who are trying to buy land together. There are land trusts. Land trusts really have a space in this conversation. Um, I think that the, the way that climate interacts with all of this is you could buy a piece of land as a collective. You could work to improve the soil and you could end up in a, you know, in a vulnerable place in terms of extreme weather. So it is a risky moment to be, to be making investments. And I think we are seeing a number of folks trying to go back to the land and trying to go back to family farms to try to sort of rehabilitate them. I, this week, last week, I interviewed a farmer named Beth Hoffman, who is in Iowa with her husband and they're on her husband's fifth generation farm and they're trying to do that. And it's, it's a process and it's taking years potentially to figure out how to get the right support from the USDA there, but it's inspiring to see folks do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess it's interesting to me to think about all of these different methods of land I guess, stewardship and how they connect maybe to historical models or various models, traditional ecological knowledge and that, that kind of thing. And um, do you have any experience looking at indigenous models of, of land stewardship as far as agricultural, agriculturally speaking? We have been covering that a fair amount at Civil Eats in the last few years. We've really been trying to focus on bringing a greater understanding of indigenous land management and farm practices to a general audience. And 
it's it's inspiring. There's we we interviewed the directors of a field co- film called Inhabitants recently, Gosha Wozniaka, one of the writers who I work pretty closely with, and I really recommend that interview. It's it goes pretty deep, and the, the documentary itself goes pretty deep into the indigenous approach to land stewardship and how things like controlled burns and working with fire in a different way and controlling forests in a different way and planting in a different way, whether that's um, the way that the, the Hopi people plant corn or we're actually working on a story right now about waffle gardens in the Zuni Pueblo, which is another really interesting form of, of farming that can be done in drier environments. So yes, that is something that we are really trying to lift up and make space for. And we have a really, a great indigenous writing fellow, Andy Murphy, who has started to do some of that work and is going to continue throughout this year. That's awesome. And we can link to that article in our show notes. Mm -hmm. So let's think back to the reader and the individual and what's the connection between what we eat and how we buy our, or acquire our food and our civil engagement. Something that you touch on a little bit, this tension between the individual and the systematic change that we need, especially where the health of the planet is concerned. Sure. There were a number of years when people talked about voting with your fork. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. I think it, it's still around that term and I I don't use it, but I, I think it's interesting. And I, I never quite felt like you voted with your fork exactly. <laughs> I think that we, we make a statement potentially with, with our forks and we, we take up space or we, we decide who takes up space on the farm landscape and we make important decisions <laughs> around our food. And I do think that in the case of climate, we, we can continue to do that. We can continue to support farmers who we know are building in regenerative practices. We can try to learn as much as we can about the farms that we're um, buying our food from. If we have access to farmers markets, uh, if we have access to CSAs, those types of things. And, And a lot of us do, which is great. But I also think the, the larger systemic changes is crucial. And I, have thought a lot about the way those two things are often seen as at odds and the the way that folks will say it's not enough to vote with your fork or it's not enough to go to the farmer's market. And, and I don't disagree that it's not enough to do that alone. And so as I was writing this, I had a little bit of my own <laughs> aha moment. I, I'm sure many folks have thought this way previously, but for me, thinking about... I was writing about collecting water in my home, which is a little bit of a nerdy thing that <laughs> I did all summer. You know, I had different ways of just collecting excess water so that I could water my yard. And I know other people were doing that too, whether it's like the, the water you boiled your pasta in or the water that you, you used while you were waiting for it to get hot in the shower, for instance. And so I was doing this and I have a, a dynamic with my husband where he <laughs> doesn't think this is necessary <laughs> or he doesn't see the importance of doing this and he thinks it's a real pain in the butt to have a bucket in our shower for instance 
And so I was constantly questioning it myself because I had to kind of have this little mini marital battle every couple of days around it. And I was thinking about how doing that small, time-consuming, sometimes absurd feeling thing was actually like kind of like a meditative practice for me. To, it was an opportunity for me to meditate on the importance of water. And even if in the grand scheme of things, it was like I would be imagining the, <laughs> the reservoirs and knowing that they were dropping and that my little like few gallons at a time, you know, I knew that that wasn't going to ultimately make a huge difference in terms of allowing for more salmon to, to stay alive <laughs> in the rivers, for instance. But thinking about it actively every day really felt kind of powerful for me. And I, and it reminded me that I want to see policy policy change. It reminded me that this is what's important to me and that, yes, I will continue to eat. I will continue to vote with my fork. I will continue to eat food produced in ways that I really support, even when it's sometimes feels too expensive for me, even when it's um, it can be onerous for me to to process some of that food myself. It helps me re remember those all those little steps. It's been the case in the kitchen for a long time that those little steps help me become the person again and again and again who cares about larger systemic change. Yeah, and I just love that you describe it as a meditative practice because I, in my notes, I've been calling it your gray water practice. And it really makes me think of the way artists and writers, you know, have little habits that make them pay attention. And, and as you say, this is about paying attention. Um, and we will be speaking later or at another point in the podcast with Francis Moore LePay. And I was struck by a quote of hers that I read in a recent Washington Post article and where she says that I felt from the beginning food had a special power. It viscerally connects you to the earth and to people. She continues, I remember learning that the word companion is rooted in the French word for bread and the idea of breaking bread with another person. She says, what we eat, others notice. And so in her quote, that word notice stood out to me because of your essay. And it just made me think, um, how do we teach this? How do we teach people to become the person who notices water? It's a great question. And I'm in the process of trying to help revitalize the school garden at my son's school because it went to sleep when everyone, when everything shut down and hasn't come back to life yet. And I think raising a child in such a way that he can tell the difference between a kale plant and a collard plant in our backyard, for instance, um, and knows when pomegranate season is starting because it's his favorite fruit, but he knows that he can't, he doesn't get access to it <laughs> the rest of the year. Um, you know, it's, it's been a joyful process for me, but it's more importantly, it's been about trying to make him into that kind of person. And I know that we can't start from scratch <laughs> with everybody. Um, but I do think that food Food has been a path for a lot of folks. I, I've heard it from many, many people that 
connecting to the process of making and growing food and connecting to the process of supporting farmers in a different way has changed who they are, you know, at a core level. I don't want to be really dramatic about it, but I do, I do think that things have gotten too convenient for the most part, right? Like I can just continue to shower and pretend like there isn't a historic drought going on. For some reason, that's still possible. I don't totally understand <laughs> why there there is as much water being used now. In California, I read that it was something like 2%. Two, 2%. People had reduced 2% of their water usage in the cities. And we're still moving along as if that's totally fine. I shouldn't say I, I do shower, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Continue to shower every day for, for 20 minutes, potentially, if I wanted to. And I think that things have gotten too convenient in the sense that we aren't as engaged in the process anymore, the process of making and growing food. We're not as engaged in so many different little processes around all the objects we learn, we use in our lives. And I think that, that that disengagement is a big part of what makes us have less empathy. It's a big part of what makes us continue to feel like we need to consume and consume and consume. Even when we have what we need, we need to, for some reason, continue to buy, you know, the sweater that is right for next year because the sweater we have this year isn't going to be, isn't going to cut it anymore. Um, and I think that food has been that pathway for a lot of people, but that it really, and ideally it, it can open us up to much more than just food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're promoting noticing as a way towards change, because I think, you know, it also just makes us happier people when we slow down and be where we are. So it's a lovely way to start thinking about where we're going. And thank you so much for joining us, Twilight. It was really great to speak with you. Thank you. I really had a good time talking to you, Amy. We've been listening to Twilight Greenaway, Senior Editor at Civil Eats. We're here today with guests Frances Moore LePay and her daughter, Anna LePay, on the occasion of the release of the 50th anniversary edition of Frances's landmark work, Diet for a Small Planet. Frances Moore LePay has authored 20 books, including Diet for a Small Planet, and in 2017, she co-authored with Adam Eichen, Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. Francis co-founded Small Planet Institute and is the recipient of 20 honorary degrees and the Right Livelihood Award, often called the Alternative Nobel. Francis's daughter, Anna LaPay, is a national best-selling author and a renowned advocate for sustainability and justice along the food chain. Anna is the co-author or author of three books on food, farming, and sustainability, and the contributing author to 13 more, including Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork, and What You Can Do About It. With her mother, she helped curate the recipe section of the 50th anniversary of Diet for a Small Planet. Francis and Anna, I'm so delighted to speak to you both together. Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Before we dive in and talk about the book, can you guys tell me a little bit about working together? Maybe, Francis, you can go first. Well, I guess you could describe it as feeling like the most fortunate, luckiest mom in the world. It's 
Incredible. Anna and I got to travel the world together 20 years ago and write a book together. So it became really a family tradition. <laughs> and uh, on this new edition, the 50th anniversary of Diet for Small Planet, Anna has been absolutely key from the beginning to making it happen, as well as contributing greatly uh, to the, the recipe section, of course, as she organized all of that. So um, it's really been so easy because we each have our different styles, but we really complement each other. <laughs> and both, liter you know, the literal complement with an I and an E. And um, so it's, I, I can't rave about it more fully than that. <laughs> Awesome. Anna? Oh, well, that's very sweet, Mom. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to say that ever since I was a kid, I feel I have been so influenced by my mother's work. And so it really is a joy to work with her on the work. And she mentioned we wrote a book together, my first book, uh, when I was 26. And then it was fun to work on this project again. But, you know, from the my earliest memories, I feel like my mother brought me into her world of work and activism. And so from a really young age, my political thinking was really informed by by her, by the work that she was doing at the Institute for Food and Development Policy, by connecting the dots between uh, what was happening in our food system and what was happening in foreign policy, for instance. And it's that kind of influence that's been you know, throughout my life. She's being a bit modest. She actually started editing me when I think she was in middle school, <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> and then when we wrote the book together, um, she had such a hand in it. And um, one of the funny stories I like to tell about her style was that she would develop a little icon uh, in this in this uh, book, Hope's Edge, and she put a picture little drawing of a cheese slicer in the margin when she thought her mom had sort of gone over the top in being too cheesy and pull it back, mom. So it was subtle, but I got the message. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I My eldest is also a writer and he early on in teenagers, certainly there was a lot of eye rolly editing. So I, <laughs> I can totally appreciate that. I always think about, you know, kids of activist parents too. It's like, what do you do to rebel, you know, when you're a kid? Well, as one of my friends who works with his father said to me once many years ago and it stuck with me all these years, he said, you know, there is plenty in the world to rebel against. I don't need to rebel against the politics of my parents. And having grown up with parents whose politics really connect with my own, I certainly share that sentiment. Excellent. Well, you know, reading the 50th anniversary edition feels a little bit like peeling back an onion or maybe <laughs> making one's way through a delightful artichoke because it has this unusual structure. We move mostly but not completely chronologically through the early editions and then finished with the newest content and the really enticing new recipes. Francis, I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that structure and what were the challenges and benefits? Well, my life story organized the book. I added the 10th anniversary edition, and then we got to the 20th anniversary edition. And each time I tried to update my readers where I've gone along this journey. And uh, I love looking back at it, actually, because it's uh, like reading your own diary. Um, but uh, it's also, I think, a really interesting 
look at what was up at different points in our history, this fear of scarcity, which was so dominant when I was uh, 26, 27, it was everywhere. And um, then growing to understand the complexity of uh, our food and political system and economic system that were generating hunger out of plenty, that continued to add layer after layer as our economy has become more concentrated and our food supply has increasingly degraded for the majority of us. So it's, um, I, I, the structure is just really the, the original, you know, the, the added 10th anniversary, that 20th and now a whole new opening of the 50th that takes people through the journey of my whole life. So that's, and of course, then <laughs> the second half of the book is really all about uh, the, these, what I think of as modernized, spruced up recipes, plus um, more than a dozen from noted chefs in the plant-centered world who just were just fabulous to contribute to this. And Anna, I want to give her full credit for organizing that update and um, one of the funny things I love to tell people <laughs> that convinced me that we really needed to do some sprucing up of the original recipe, she said, Mom, do you realize there are 70 references to margarine in your original book? <laughs> and I've learned since then that the sugar industry was the industry that uh, tried to divert us onto fear about fat and away from concern about sugar. And I fell for it, you know, and I thought, oh, I don't want to introduce too much animal fat, so I'll recommend margarine. And so all that had to be changed, of course, and it's done beautifully now in the new edition with the uh, modernized, brought up to the 21st century recipes. That's great. It feels to me almost like a conversation across generations each time you've re um, revised the book and re-released it. You're talking to a new group of people. Do you find that the responses have evolved as well? I do. I do. I'm really hoping that, you know, at least from the response so far, that we are reaching a whole new generation of people with this new book who have never heard of the book before. So I'm just so pleased at I mean, it's beyond my wildest dreams in a way. <laughs> and again, I want to thank Anna for so encouraging me to do it because, you know, we've gotten such great coverage for people who probably, you know, never had been exposed to it. And I'm trying to think of a particular example. Can you think, Anna, of something where the coverage has been, oh, you mean that appeared there? I can't. Well, you know, I would say f from the coverage for the 50th so far, to me, one of the dominant messages has been that what was so radical in 1971 when you came out with this message of Diet for Small Planet, when you shine the light on how our food system is actually impacting our environment and how uh, inequities in our society are showing up and how we're organizing food, those kinds of conversations, those questions, talking about even food as a system was so radical. And what I feel like has been really clear in the reporting about the book is how much more understanding there is about the complexity of our food. You know, people think beyond aisle eight at the grocery store, they're asking questions. I think Edible Communities has been, to me, a really 
clear manifestation of that is that there is this hunger out there to really know where our food comes from. And to ask where our food comes from is no longer seen as some radical uh, preoccupation without consequence that people really see asking about where our food comes from is foundational to (laughs) all the things we care about. And so I think the coverage has really reflected that, that we really are at a new point and at the same time that the messages of your book 50 years ago are as urgent as ever or even more so. And I would just add to that, I'm sure you agree that that the uh, the climate movement, the, the uh, great concern about the climate crisis, that just wasn't part of the food discussion at all uh, when I began. And now I feel like so many people whose primary passion is about facing uh, the climate crisis, they see now food and agriculture is such a huge piece of this that as much as 37% of greenhouse gases could be related to our entire food system and the destruction of rainforest that we need to sequester carbon are big, you know, that's happening in part because of the continuing meat driven diets. So I feel like that's a whole world of people who now identify with the food movement as well as part of their mission. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like there's a convergence between plant-centered and Mm planet-centered eating. Exactly. Yeah, and and hopefully the overlap in those interests would would just increase the audience for, uh, you know, who's listening. I want to think back to the recipes for a moment and um, to folks who might be approaching the book for the first time, and they might not know that they're getting a really comprehensive cookbook and kind of a how to eat book. And the recipes and the food tips are a big chunk of it. And I also, I think I was reflecting on the conversation or what feels to me like a conversation among all the contributed recipes writers. Um, because they're kind of across time and across the world. And I was wondering, Anna, if you could talk a little bit about what went into assembling the recipe portion. Sure. Well, Amy, I love that you experienced it as a reader, as a conversation across across time and space and, and all different kinds of people. That's definitely what we were hoping for. So you're exactly right. The book is in two parts. There was always this book one that was the political and economic story and that my mother tells. And there, there was always a book two that had recipes that really showed people how do you uh, cook a plant-centered diet. And so when we were thinking about the 50th anniversary edition, we knew we wanted to keep recipes in there. We thought about just leaving them as they were. But we didn't want this to feel like recipes cast in amber. <laughs> as, as my mother mentioned, there was you know some antiquated ingredients, margarine being one and soy grits being an example of another. <laughs> you know, It's like if you cannot find uh, an ingredient in a natural food store in Berkeley, then we should not be putting that ingredient into a cookbook. We wanted the recipes to be accessible. And so as we thought about what would it look like to refresh these recipes for the 50 anniversary edition, I knew immediately that I wanted to bring in the voices and the cuisine and the the spirit of a sampling of the countless chefs and cookbook authors who, to me, really embody the beauty, diversity, joy, and deliciousness of plant-centered eating. And so you will find in the pages some of my favorite people, uh, cookbook authors like Bryant Terry 
and uh, Padma Lakshmi uh, that some people might know from Top Chef, uh, people like Jose Andres, so many. But what I really want to emphasize is I could have picked a dozen other people or even a dozen other people that this really, I really want this to feel like this is just a, a tiny window into this huge universe of really incredible uh, chefs and cookbook authors. And so we wanted the recipe section to, again, really reflect that. And I am so glad, Amy, that you feel it, it, it does do that. And, uh, and, and then our hope uh, was, again, to, to make these recipes accessible and to make them reflect uh, what I see as some of the core principles of plant-centered diet, which fundamentally includes this uh, diversity and deliciousness of plant-centered foods. Yeah. And I think it was the, the top notes that really helps to, you know, make those connections and make it feel more like a conversation. We can all look at the name of a recipe creator and know, wow, they're a famous chef, but then hearing some of their own words is really, is really delightful. Yeah. And if I can just add, add to that, Amy, too, because I, I want to really stress that I am not a cookbook author or a recipe developer that, again, when we knew we wanted to update these recipes, I knew I could not do that <laughs> on my own. I, that is not my skill set. So I sought out uh, a woman named Wendy Lopez, who uh, has an organization called Food Heaven Made Easy. She's a dietitian, nutritionist, uh, and uh, a real advocate for bringing diverse voices into the world of uh, dietetics. And I'd been following her work for a long time, and I asked if she would come on board to help do the recipe development. And so it was also a conversation between Wendy and me across many Zoom calls. Uh, but that also, I feel like, was part of the joy of creating the book, that it, it itself was a very collaborative process. Excellent. I, I love the fact that Molly Katzen, who you acknowledge was influenced by the original edition, when, when she was writing her own Moosewood cookbook, has a recipe in here as well, along with Alice Waters, who is celebrating her own 50th anniversary this year. It made me think about how much, Francis, you three women have affected how America eats over the last five decades. And so it made me wonder, who are the writers and cooks that you see changing our diets over the next 50 years? Well, I'm going to let Anna answer that, but I just wanted to say about Alice Waters and Mo Molly and is a dear friend. But it was just amazing to me that I was sitting in the UC Berkeley Library, really blocks from where Chez Panisse was founded. And I think it was pretty much the same month <laughs> that uh, Chez Panisse opened and Diet for a Small Planet went to press. And so just there was something in the zeitgeist, there was something in the air in, in California at that time that really fed literally and figuratively these insights and passions and, and um, in my case, the book. So, but I wanted Anna to um, answer that about the future. Yeah, it's a great question, Amy, really provocative. And I think what comes to mind in thinking about an answer is less, you know, an individual person or a few individual people. And I think of it more from the perspective of what I see are the movements of people. And those include not just chefs and cookbook authors, but it includes public health advocates and it includes community organizers. It includes, frankly, climate activists, these movements that are saying, if we are going to have a livable planet in 50 or 100 years, we really have to change what's on our plate. And we have to make sure that what's on our plate 
is uh, more health serving to ourselves and is more life serving to food producers uh, and is more reflective of a diversity of, of cultures on the planet. Uh, and that if we keep following this dominant path toward plates that are filled with ultra processed foods, <laughs> with including ultra processed meat products, uh, if we keep heading in that direction, that that will not serve our bodies, it will not serve us spiritually, and it will not serve the planet. And so I really feel a sense of it's less individual people and it's more of these broader movements that are going to really shape what our plates look like over the next 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, practically speaking, what are we talking about when you advocate this shift from meat-centered eating to a plant-centered diet? I think the thought of big shifts can be really daunting to people, um, even though I think what our nutritionists tell us we should be eating seven to nine servings of vegetables a day. I think if we were actually doing that, we wouldn't maybe be hungry for <laughs> anything else. But, but Francis, it made me wonder how effective is small change, like just having one plant-based meal a week? And how do you suggest folks approach the shift the away from what you call meat plus sides conception of dinner? Mm -hmm. Well, any change we make from um, a grain-fed, meat-centered beef in particular is the least efficient. Just to, let me just tell all our listeners that um, for the, the, the calories from the calories that are fed in feed to beef, we get 3% back in the beef that we eat. So it's incredibly inefficient and uses resources um, and helps um, pollute the air through the greenhouse gas emissions, both emitted from livestock themselves, but also in the production of the feed and et cetera, et cetera. So there is a huge benefit to any reduction as uh, and the more the better. Uh, I also want to underscore that the World Health Organization has identified processed meat now as a carcinogen and um, beef as a probable carcinogen. So this is really something that it, it's good for us, it's good for the earth, it's, it's, it's good for all the, the producers who don't have to use the massive chemicals and all in driving this system. So that is really what I want to underscore, that any way that we can for ourselves, as well as our families and the earth, um, reduce our, we, our consumption of meat. We are now the world's largest um, consumer of meat still. And uh, therefore, I mean, we could cut in half, you know, and that would make it, because we're such a big part of the picture, it means every step we take has an outlarged, you know, outsized impact. So um, I, I just think that beginning to open our minds and our hearts and our mouths to all this very positive turn of events, not out of guilt or you should, but, oh, wow, you know, uh, there are all these win-win-wins for my body, the health, you know, the, the, the earth, the climate, all of that. So that's really the spirit in which I work. It's certainly the spirit that the recipes take. Uh, and I guess I want to mention that reading through them, I noticed they're not completely devoid of animal products. You have butter, right. you have eggs, I think there's cheese. So um, people can be making transitions or changes in any any way that 
probably feels good to them. Exactly. Yeah. And I would just add that's what I've always loved about my mother talking about the diet that she is sharing in this book as a plant-centered and planet-centered diet, that uh, it really is a big tent uh, for anybody who wants to come sit around the table and think about how uh, animal products may or may not have a place in their diets, either for their own health reasons or spiritual reasons, cultural reasons. We really want this to feel like a very big tent. That's a, yeah, that's a great way to... um... Well, it does feel welcoming, I guess I should say. Uh, at Edible Communities, one of the things that we've purported on recently is the difference between food security and nutrition security. In in a way, it's kind of considering the scarcity is not a problem part of your message um, and looking at what, what else we might need to consider. So, Francis, how has your thinking and activism evolved around the difference between food security and nutrition security? Well... It's evolved in the the you know two two directions at once that we've been moving because one of the things that was most alarming for me as I got into the research for the new edition is just how far down the road to disaster you know the the typical American diet has gone and that um, it's that that. 60% of the calories that Americans consume are devoid of nutrition. Effectively, they're ultra-processed foods that a lot, give us a lot of calories, a lot of sugar and salt, but very little nutrition. And we know now that the, the, um, the processing companies have really <laughs> worked hard to make these products addictive. They've studied this and, and found what's going to get us hooked on these nutritionless foods that provide them tremendous profit. And so it's not surprising then that we have this great increase in diabetes in our country. I learned that nearly half of the American population is either pre-diabetic or diabetic. I mean, it's it's close to, to that level. And uh, this is a very serious situation. And so I'm I've just been so alarmed at how degraded our diet has become. And so that's really, as we've learned, you know, that, as I said earlier about the, um, the, the carcinogenic, carcinogenic um, danger of meat eating. So I think that's the, the, the to recognize how, how much of our diet has turned away from that, which gives us health and, so um, I think if more people understood how serious that crisis is now, that crisis of many calories but no nutrition, and not, you know, it's, it's so difficult because we're in a culture that has so much body shaming, you know, so much body image shaming, uh, and that's the last thing that we want to contribute to. It's really we want to free people to to listen to their own bodies and be be feel good about their choices not to shame anyone and to see that how they we've been we've been used um by the industry to get us to get them profits at the expense of our health and feel not motivated out of shame but motivated out of realizing our power that we don't have to be victims of that system 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I just continuing on that same idea, Anna. Acknowledging that food choices often spring from a place of privilege, how does plant-centered eating fit into the work of food equity or food sovereignty and access? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And and I think this really pulls uh, from what my mother was just saying, which is that, you know, our, our, uh, so often what we choose to eat is really not a choice at all. You know, so often we go into a grocery store, I think a typical grocery store has 40,000 SKUs, but actually only a handful of companies have actually produced those products we ha- we see. And so often our typical grocery stores are actually com- filled with those ultra processed products. And so, uh, you know, I, I really want to make it clear that when we talk about uh, food choices, so often we use that word, but actually we, many of us don't have real choice at all. And so when we are talking about the kinds of diets that center plants on our plate, the need to be uh, choosing uh, and and choosing those more healthful diets. We're really clear that for many of us, uh, we don't have those options. We don't have that access, and that's why you cannot uh, disconnect the conversation about food and what we're putting on our plates from the conversation of power and democracy. And I've been very influenced over these decades by my mother's work in uniting these two conversations uh, because what we have seen today is the ways in which some of the most powerful companies in our country, including food and agribusiness companies, have shaped what we are taught in schools about what's nutritious, uh, what uh, uh, school food looks like, what, uh, you know, what kids are getting on their plate in school food, uh, what kids are advertised to. Uh, all of those things have been so shaped by the political influence of companies. So just to give you one example, I remember uh, researching the history of marketing junk food to kids, which is now rampant on television, on even in many schools, and it really influences what kids eat. And it didn't necessarily have to be this way just before Ronald Reagan was elected. So this is now a long time ago, but our, our Congress actually had hearings on, wait a second, is it actually, uh, 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 should we allow as a government marketing to children when we know based on the science that children do not have the cognitive ability, they literally do not have the neurological development to distinguish between advertising and information. And the science was clear back then, the late 70s, that uh, that marketing really is, uh, uh, marketing to kids uh, is really exploiting that weakness of children. And uh, out of the wake of these hearings, Congress was positioning to pass really strict legislation that would have limited marketing to kids. You wouldn't have had those sugary cereals advertised to kids and their Saturday morning cartoons. And then Ronald Reagan came into office and uh, brought forth huge deregulation, including completely wiping away (laughs) uh, any crumbs of that kind of policy. So I just bring up that is one tiny example, uh, but a really significant one, but one that really shows how much what might be perceived as choice is, is really uh, so impacted by uh, marketing from the industry and by political influence that shapes regulation and policy. It makes me think about how big companies are evolving to understand this and are, you know, proclaiming their sustainability or their green-centered way that appeals to 
ourselves as individuals feeling like we have power in those individual choices that we make. And, and um, you know, it brings me to the question of that tension between individual action and systematic change. And if we're, and, and how much power we do have as individuals, you know, in these small choices that we're making through maybe what we mm-hmm. put on the plate. Uh, and I'm wondering if you want to speak to that, Fran- Francis. Yes, I'm so eager to, I, you know, I, 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 here's how I think about it that every choice I make that is aligned with the world I want that's best for me, my family, and others, I feel less a victim, and I feel more powerful, I feel more convincing to myself, and therefore to others. So we've got to, I feel like, to let go of that either-or framework, and just to know that by strengthening our own experience, and we're just more convincing and and, align, and aligning ourselves, we're more convincing. And, and so this intersect between my public responsibilities and my home life of eating and sharing food um, is really become easier and easier to feel on a daily basis. And so the democracy, I feel like I have, you know, the two feet democracy and the food movement, democracy movement. And just to give you one figure on this that Uh, to make it more uh, tangible, is that there are now in in Washington more than 20 lobbyists, right? Corporate lobbyists for every single person that you and I elect to represent us there, right? 20. And there are more agribusiness lobbyists than there are oil and gas lobbyists. So my, um, my activism around what I call the food movement in our organization, Small Planet Institute, co-sponsors a website called democracymovement.us, where you can go there and wherever you live, you can see what are the democracy reforms to to disempower, to, to free our Congress from that kind of corporate influence, among other things. But that's part of it for you know, to keep money and and stop that revolving door between the corporate lobbyists and Washington government posts. So I feel like it's this joy of knowing I don't have to make a choice. Either I'm a democracy diehard or I'm a food movement diehard. And to realize that we can't separate the two because until we really have decision makers in Washington who are looking out for us because we are making them accountable to us, then we can't make the kind of system changes, including, including Absolutely. Um, um, Confronting the extreme inequality, we are more economically unequal in the society than in in a hundred other countries. I mean, we are among the most extreme in the world, and most Americans don't appreciate that. So I, I go back to my original comment right here for this question was that the more I feel aligned with um, every day and what I put in my mouth, the, the more uh, less a victim I feel, and the more I feel empowered to take on these larger system questions. So it's not an either or for me, and I hope others can feel that joy of of uh, alignment. Anna, do you have anything to add uh, just about how these choices maybe put us on the path towards bigger changes? Sure. I mean, I think that one of the things I think about when I think about the, this this question is that I also think that it becomes a way for people to get activated when they realize that they don't have 
the access to the kind of food that they uh, need to be healthy, that that can be a form of ignition <laughs> of outrage. And uh, and so the question becomes, and how do you harness that? How do you actually get people to think about, well, then what do you do with that frustration? And how do you create uh, policies that will increase food access? And, and that's where I've been really thrilled to see over the last two decades, really uh, growing community organizing and mobilization of groups that are helping people connect those dots who are saying, oh, so, you know, why is it that your community doesn't have uh, community gardens, but that community does? Or why is it that in your neighborhood, you don't have grocery stores with healthy food? And how can we pass local ordinances to make that change happen? How can we look at uh, really uh, scaling up zoning so that you can have more communities, can have community gardens and those kinds of political changes? And then the final thing I would say is that while as individuals, often our purchases in a grocery store, for instance, can uh, sometimes just be like a, a whisper in the marketplace uh, to uh, uh, the supply chain, that there are ways to combine our voices and make them louder, more like a scream or a shout. <laughs> and one of those ways is through looking at how our government makes big purchasing decisions about food. And one of the biggest purchasing decisions about food our government makes is around school food. So I've been really thrilled to see the growth of a, a municipal policy called the Good Food Purchasing Program. It's celebrating its 10th anniversary uh, next year, but it was started in Los Angeles by a group of community organizers who wanted to shift how school districts think about buying food and wanted to embed into those purchasing decisions the shared values around the environment, nutrition, animal welfare, local economies, and health. And that uh, adoption of this good food purchasing program in that school district and now in many districts across the country has enabled uh, elected officials to really do purchasing on a big scale that reflects those values. And I think that's just one example of how we can kind of collectivize what can be sometimes feeling like a very quiet voice in the marketplace. Oh, I think you're right. And it's really encouraging. I think whenever we can think about kids having better access to healthy food and what um, small groups of people could do to enact big change. Uh, when I recently interviewed Twilight Greenaway for the same podcast episode, I brought up a quote from you, Francis, in the Washington Post, where you mentioned the etymology of the word companion mm -hmm. and how it stems from breaking bread together. I'm kind of a linguistics nerd, so I got pretty excited about that. And as we wind up our conversation, I was wondering if you can both invite some folks to your imaginary dinner table. Who would you break bread with today? And what would you hope the conversation would be? Francis, do you want to go first? Well, I... Um... I love that fact that companion is from the brood of, of breaking bread together. And I, uh, as you ask that, what flashes to mind is um, that um, I invited, an, and this had to pause during the COVID period, but, but I'm so excited to be reconvening as soon as we can, um, a democracy circle in um, Cambridge of what the people who I most admire who are right at the front line, some of them working with unions, some of them working on voter reform and, and getting money out of politics, but we all share this passion for democracy. And so we started meeting and sharing food together in our office once a month. And, and 
and um, just having a big pot of a veggie something or other. Um, my favorite had to do with a a, a coconut um, uh, curry uh, stew with um, chickpeas and all. But this food was definitely part of it and bringing us together to break bread or at least pick up the spoon uh, together uh, to talk about our missions and that the food piece of it really brought us together. And so that's an example of what I think of as the best of this companion image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and if I would imagine my dream companions around a dinner table, if I could pick three who came to mind uh, were three women who I have been so inspired by. Uh, one is Ida Tarbell, the muckraking journalist who exposed Standard Oil and who my daughter Ida is named after. Uh, the second is Wangari Mathai, who was an incredible environmental leader who my mother and I had the privilege of getting to know and getting uh, the privilege of calling her a dear friend who uh, was a, a leader in Kenya who started the Green Belt movement there and who ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize for her work as an environmentalist and as, as protecting the environment is so a critical piece of peace building. And the third is Rachel Carson, of course, author of Silent Spring, among many other books. And I was imagining this incredible dinner party with these three trailblazing women and hearing them share uh, what it was like for them as women to speak up in the ways that they did, the kind of attacks that they experienced and yet uh, would love to hear them talk about their resilience in the face of those attacks. And as I was imagining this dinner party and feeling these pangs of sadness that, of course, these three women will never sit around a table together, I remembered that all these women wrote books and that books are a way for us to connect with those who have come before us. And they are a way for us to sit around a dinner table with them in a way. And so as you were asking that question, it was kind of a, a inspiration for me to pull out their books again and to think about reading their books actually together and in, in, in almost <laughs> creating that party inside my head. But, you know, it is a reminder, of course, of the spirit of all of these people who have come before us and how can we tap into their spirits and how can we help to continue the legacy of their work. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both, Francis and Anna, for taking the time to speak with me today. What a great pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Amy. It was really fun to have a conversation with you. We've been listening to Francis Moore LePay and Anna LePay. You can find more information about Diet for a Small Planet at dietforasmallplanet.org. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.